HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. everyone and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm Kim Kessler, I'm your host, and I'm with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law. Today we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network, and we're going to be talking about the issue of labor in the food system, and specifically labor in restaurants. Joining me is Meg Foskey, she's the National Policy Director of the Restaurant Opportunity Center United. Meg, thanks for joining today. Thanks so much for having me on. So I wanted to start out with just hearing a little bit about the background of Rock uh, Restaurant Opportunity Center. It was born out of the September 11th attacks uh, and the impact on the World Trade Center workers there. Can you tell the story of how that came about? Sure, exactly. So originally it was founded as a relief center for the surviving workers from Windows on the World, um, which you mentioned, you know, of course, was... Um, in the World Trade Center. And so it was founded as uh, by Saru Jayaraman and Mamdu Feka, who actually worked at the restaurant, um, to, you know, provide relief, provide um, help those workers find other jobs, give them, you know, um, stipends for housing and and food costs in, in the meantime. And it's really just grown since then into a movement of, of restaurant workers in more than 13 cities and states and, and continue to grow now. And how did they first get involved? So um, Mamdu was uh, one of, he, it was a unionized restaurant um, with Local 100, and he was one of the leaders, one of the shop stewards um, from the restaurant. Uh, Saru was an organizer, and so um, they were called upon to kind of form this relief center by Unite Here. I mean, I want to say it's a separate organization, but to come together, Mamdu and Saru, to form the organization um, after 9-11. 
So, and we'll talk more about how the organization has grown and changed since then. But I first want to hear from you, you know, just a little bit about who are restaurant workers. I mean, even that founding, starting with Windows on the World, is a very high-end kind of restaurant. And I think certain people in New York, that's what they first think of. But then there's also been so much in the news about fast food workers and the labor issues that are going on in that element of restaurant workers, which... Um, you know, certainly really different. So can you give us a sense, what's the demographic and how do the labor issues translate across those different kinds of restaurants? Yeah, I mean, so first, I mean, when we talk about who are restaurant workers, it's, you know, one of the largest industries right now in the United States. So 10% of the working population actually is employed in restaurants. So, you know, who are restaurant workers is really the population. So in New York, for example, in New York City, um, you know, largely comprised of immigrants um, from all around the world work in, uh, work in restaurants, you know, as New York really is a city of immigrants. Um, but, you know, restaurant work is incredibly diverse from, you know, people who are brand, you know, brand new to the country um, to, you know, people who, um, you know, have college degrees, PhDs, and choose to work in the restaurant industry. It's an incredibly diverse workforce. And what are the labor issues that impact workers? What are some of the biggest challenges? So, I mean, as I mentioned, it's one of the fastest growing industries in the U.S. You know, it's also proven to be really recession-proof. So, you know, the restaurant industry is doing really well, but it also has the lowest paying jobs of any industry in the United States. So, I mean, every year the Department of Labor puts out kind of this, you know, top 10 worst offenders, I would say, list of what are the lowest paying jobs in the United States. And every single year, you know, six or seven of those jobs are restaurant jobs. And only one of those is actually a fast food job. Um, So poverty, I mean, economic insecurity is the biggest issue. And not just in terms of wages, but in things like, you know, um, being able to take off when they're sick. Um, You know, also issues that, you know, uh, scheduling, you know, being canceled shifts or scheduled short shifts. You know, restaurant workers really experience all the brunt of kind of the issues that we're talking about nationally that affect, you know, the workforce generally, but low-wage workers in particular. I know your organization uh, at one point put out a report on food insecurity uh, within restaurant workers, and one of the statistics from that was that 41% of New York City restaurant workers that were surveyed were food insecure. Um, So as I hear you talk about some of the income challenges that came to mind. What was the reaction to that report? You know, it was, people were really surprised. I think the idea that, I think just the kind of the the image of the fact that you're in a restaurant and literally the people that are putting food on your table can't afford to feed themselves. You know, even people kind of know intellectually that poverty exists. That kind of image, I think, was shocking to people. It got a lot of attention and a lot of coverage. Um, you know, that this is a huge issue. And within an establishment that's focused on food and serving food and, you know, as we become increasingly, you know, foodies, Americans eat out more than any other country. We spend about half the money we spend on food is spent in restaurants. And yet the people that are actually serving the food aren't profiting from that. In fact, they're struggling to feed themselves. I think a lot of uh, people, when they think of uh waiters and restaurant servers and waitresses, um, and particularly people working in the front of the house in restaurants, they imagine people on summer break, uh, students, people doing transitional work between different pieces of their career. How does that image correlate with who's really making up um, a lot of our restaurant 
works work. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's, that is, uh, while that's true, there certainly are college students, um, you know, working restaurant jobs. I was one of those college students. The vast majority of people working even in front of the house jobs, um, just to talk about that, are not college students. The median age is about 32. Over 40% nationally are parents. This is, you know, people that are heads of household. Um, and, you know, predominantly, I think one of the big conceptions are, too, like, where people work. And so I guess most, um, you know, most when you think about, you know, tips workers, front of the house workers especially, um, most of them work in these casual fine dining restaurants, places like Olive Garden, IHOPs, Applebee's, and uh, nearly 70% of front of the house restaurant workers are women. And why, I mean, is there an explanation for why that is? Well, I think when it comes to front of the house workers, there's a really you know, well-organized and, you know, very intentional effort to kind of paint a picture of who uh, tips workers are, which are, you know, front-of-the-house workers for the most part, um, because this is connected to what they earn. So the National Restaurant Association is one of the most powerful lobbying groups in the United States. It's comprised largely of groups like McDonald's, Darden, which is home to brands like Olive Garden. listed as one of the top 10 most powerful lobbying organizations in the United States. They have chapters in all of the state, and their kind of top item um, for most years, this year included, is to continue the existence of the subminimum wage for tipped workers. So federally, uh, 213 is actually the minimum wage for tipped workers, hasn't increased in over 20 years. It's frozen. It doesn't increase with the regular minimum wage. And the restaurant industry justifies this justifies the fact that tipped workers have a lower wage by saying that, you know, paint this picture of either a college student, um, you know, a high school student who isn't, like, financially responsible for themselves, or paint this picture of, you know, a man who works at a fine dining steakhouse and is making hundreds of dollars a night in tips, when the reality is, as I mentioned, that's just not the case. Most people who are affected by the subminimum wage working casual, full-service restaurants. They're primarily women. You know, they're adults. They're parents. Um, so I think there's a very intentional effort of painting who tips workers are because it allows them to perpetuate this subminimum wage. So I think uh, we want to turn to that because there's been a lot of policy developments around uh, tipped wage laws and that number that you talk about, the 213, I mean, it, it's amazing to hear how it hasn't changed. And I actually re- can recall it from my own paychecks and my own time as being a server. Um, can you describe the overall tipping law is much more confusing, I think, than um, than people would think. So can you just describe that landscape in a little bit more detail? And then we can talk about some of the recent developments here in New York State. Yeah, so the basic justification for it is it's called a tip credit system. It essentially says, because my customer provides gratuities to my employees, I should be credited for that as an employer, and I shouldn't have to pay the full minimum wage to my employees. Um, from my perspective, it's really a tip penalty system. It penalizes um, workers who earn gratuities by docking their wage rate. Um, you know, and gratuities... Um, most people think are just that, they're gratuities. There's something extra left for service when in reality in the restaurant industry and the vast majority of the states in the United States, it's actually the earnings, the wages of um, of the tips worker, of the front of the house employee. How do you know how that compares to how tipping's approached um, in other 
countries? Yeah, so we have way more um, tips workers than any other country. I mean, this is a really, you know, uniquely American system. Um, and I, I should mention that there are seven states in the United States, um, including the entire West Coast and Nevada, that don't have a lower sub-minimum wage for tips workers. So there is actually another system in existence right here in the United States. Um, but just to return to your question, you know, Europe doesn't operate like this. And, you know, most places... Um, tipped workers earn, you know, a, a wage. They earn, in many countries, a living wage, and they do earn some gratuities, but it's just something extra on top of their wage. It's not something that they're actually dependent on to earn a living. Um, so this is a really, you know, kind of uniquely American system that a lot of people, you know, come to the United States and are baffled by and don't understand. And, you know, it has a really negative impact on a lot of the workforce. And you mentioned at the beginning how Windows of the World was, is an example of a restaurant that had a unionized workforce. Uh, how do you know how prevalent unionization is? I know that a lot of hotel restaurants and hotel servers may be in a unionized system, um, but how prevalent is unionization in the restaurant workforce? Incredibly rare. So in New York City, um, you know, uh, New York City there is a high degree of unionization for hotels. And so some of the restaurants within hotels are unionized with a union called the Hotel Trades Council, a really great um, union. But the vast majority of restaurants are not unionized. There was a point um, back in the 80s where many more restaurants were unionized, kind of followed the same trend of unionization across the country where post-80s it dipped. Now I would estimate that it's got to be less than you know, less than 1% or 2% of the restaurants here in New York and nationally are unionized. It's incredibly rare. So let's talk a little bit about some of the recent um, happenings in New York State. So just just this week, New York State agreed to raise its tip minimum wage to seven fifty an hour, and that's up from $5. That, as, as compared to untipped workers, where the minimum wage is currently at $8.75 and moving up to $9 at the end of this year. So what, uh, what is the significance of this change in New York State from your perspective? Well, I think it's huge. I think it's really significant. I mean, from our perspective as an organization, you know, we don't believe that there should be any separate lower um, minimum wage for tipped workers. We think, you know, there's a lot of evidence about the negative impact it has on tipped workers. Tipped workers live in poverty at twice the rate of the rest of the workforce here in New York. Um, there's a lot of evidence that earning a sub-minimum wage and therefore making uh, servers who are predominantly female dependent on gratuities for a living um, increases their vulnerability to sexual harassment. Uh, I should say the restaurant industry already has the highest levels of sexual harassment. There's a lot of evidence that you know earning a sub-minimum wage and being even more dependent on gratuities increases that. So in our mind, you know, we advocate for what we call one fair wage or saying, you know, one fair wage for all workers, no subminimum wage for tipped workers. Um, and we think that this is a significant step towards that in New York. It's not all the way there, but it's a huge step. You know, the minimum wage has been frozen for over three years for workers here in New York. And this is going to be a $2.50 increase this year by the end of 2015. Um, the recent, recent recommendation that came out as well also includes, uh, or mandates, I should say, a study into the viability of continuing this two-tier wage system where tipped workers earn a sub-minimum wage altogether. So, you know, that's something that we thought was really important as well, is to continue this conversation and move towards the goal of having, you know, one fair wage or no sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. 
With this being a 50% increase going from a $5 tip minimum wage to $7.50, for the restaurant owners who may say, this is just too much, that's just too much of an increase too quickly, how do you respond to that? Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of evidence, for example, that I mentioned that there's seven states in the United States that don't have a separate lower minimum wage for tipped workers, right, um, including the entire West Coast of Nevada. And the evidence shows that these uh, restaurants are actually doing better than states with a subminimum wage. They have higher per capita sales. They have higher employment growth within the restaurant industry, within the classification of servers in particular. So there's not evidence that increasing wages actually results in job loss or negatively impact businesses because what happens is you pay people more, they're more invested in their work, they're more productive. They also, you know what, you give restaurant workers more money and what they do is they turn around and they eat out in restaurants more and so they put money back into the economy. So, I mean, this is constantly kind of the fear-mongering that goes on about, oh, it's going to result in job loss, oh, it's going to be disastrous, and it's just not true. It hasn't panned out for any of the minimum wage increases. There's no evidence that, you know, paying servers uh, and servers and busters and tipped workers a higher wage will negatively impact businesses. Now, in my experience eating out as a customer in, uh, in on the West Coast, I'm assuming that the examples that you cite since you said the entire West Coast include California, um, you know, I don't notice any difference as a customer, so I continue to give tips. Is that the usual way that this works, or do restaurants adapt to these uh, kinds of laws in different ways? No, it's, there's actually no difference in tipping practices um, in states that have the same um, minimum wage and states uh, for restaurant uh, for tips and non-tips, I'm sorry, and for states where there is a sub-minimum wage. There's no difference. Actually, there was a study done in Alaska, um, which is a state that also has the same minimum wage for tips and non-tips, actually has the highest tipping practices, according to this study in the United States. Um, and, you know, I will say that, you know, raising the minimum wage for tipped workers and eventually eliminating it so that there's one wage for tipped and non-tipped is a huge and important step. Uh, step. But, um, you know, for the large part, restaurant workers and tipped workers will still be dependent on gratuities to kind of um, supplement their income. Okay, and the one last question I want to ask you about the the new uh, announcement. I understand that there is a provision in the New York State bill that some are saying can undercut the kind of wage gains that you've been advocating for. What is that provision? Uh, so I can explain. I'll explain that provision, but I should say that that was actually rejected. So the labor commissioner um, did not adopt that provision that was put forth by two members of the wage board and was part of the official recommendation. It was Proposal E, um, and it would have been disastrous. And basically what it said is if an employer um, can show that their tipped workers earn 150% of the regular minimum wage in New York City or 120% outside of New York City, they could take an additional tip credit of a dollar per hour. In essence, saying um, that, you know, if you're doing okay, if you're doing a little bit above, you know, the minimum wage, then we're going to take some money back from you. Um, and enforcement already on this tip credit system is is is, is really bad. Um, routinely, it's violated. And so the idea of, like, making this system more complicated, more cumbersome by employers having to calculate percentages, possibly some employees in their restaurant would be making a different wage rate than other employees, I mean, was really ludicrous. And so our organization and a lot of other organizations, um, when that recommendation came out uh, from the wage board, advocated strongly that that not be included. There were thousands of public comments that were submitted to 
the labor commissioner about this, um, and he decided not to adopt that proposal, which was which was good and certainly the right thing to do. Thanks for explaining that. So we're going to actually now take a quick break, and then we'll come back and hear more about uh, Rock's work more generally and nationally. You are listening to Intrigue by Obey City. This is HeritageRadioNetwork.org, and this is Eating Matters. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. back on Eating Matters. I'm Kim Kessler, and today I'm joined by Meg Foskey, who's with the Restaurant Opportunity Center United, and we're talking about labor issues and how they impact those working in restaurants specifically. So, Meg, you were you had just told us a little bit about the, the major developments this week with the announcement of the raising of the tip minimum wage uh, here in New York State. What Can you give us a little bit of um, the background on Rock's role in that and how you worked to mobilize the, the folks that, that you're working on behalf of toward that goal? Um, sure. So Rock uh, was, you know, an important member of a coalition called the One Fair Wage Coalition here, along with some other uh, nonprofit groups like the Center for Popular Democracy, um, the National Employment Law Project, Make the Road. Um, and so what we worked to do over a period of several months during the wage board process, they held uh, public hearings across the state. And so we worked to mobilize um, tipped workers, um, you know, faith leaders, advocates, high road employers um, to go speak during these hearings about the need to raise the tipped minimum wage, about the need to um, – uh, the need to really have one fair wage for all tips and non-tips employees. And in addition, a lot of tips workers stood up and talked to the media and shared their story and tried to help, you know, educate the public about what is the real impact of having a $5 minimum wage for tips workers. Who, what are the faces of tips workers and how does this impact them um, for, you know, a period of months um, in order to uh, try to influence the process and make sure that tips workers got a much-needed raise here in New York. And so as you started to have some of these kinds of policy successes and certainly raising the profile of these issues or contributing to the raising of the profile of these issues, I know that uh, you have been the focus of some uh, more more critical attention. And I wanted to ask you, you know, how is your organization responding to some of those critiques? For example, lobbyist Richard Berman and others who have said that Rock is really the equivalent of a union role of, of a union, but is not being subjected to the kind of union roles that would t- that would apply for labor organizing. What's your response to that? Well, I mean, I, I, I think, 
you know, on the one hand, I think, you know, it's kind of a, a, a funny compliment because, you know, it shows that we're catching people's attention and the, you know, restaurant industry knows that kind of some of the ideas that they're putting forth, I think are being challenged for the first real way. Um, in terms of like the charge about us being a union, you know, it's, it's just not true. I worked in the labor movement for a long time. There's a difference between unions and non and, you know, nonprofit organizations like ourselves. I think we, you know, have a lot in common, a common purpose, which is to, you know, improve wages and working conditions for working people. But, you know, we don't collective bargain, uh, we don't bar- uh, engage in the collective bargaining process, excuse me. Um, you know, we're not a union. It's kind of similar to the Tea Party laboring Barack Obama, you know, a communist or a socialist. It's kind of it's along the same lines of argument. So I guess it's, you know, hard to hard to argue against because it's just not true. Tell me about how you are working nationally. I know that from your start here in New York City, um, I'm thinking, trying to calculate how long ago September 11th was now, but so, uh, you know, 14 years ago, where, how, how has Rock developed and where, where do you, where are you putting your focus now nationally? Yeah, I mean, so we've grown rapidly. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. It's just, you know, restaurant workers contacting us from other cities and states and saying, hey, we need rock here. I was actually contacted uh, just a couple months ago by a woman who moved up to Providence, Rhode Island. She'd worked in Philly and knew about rock from our location in Philadelphia and moved up to Providence to actually attend Johnson & Wales and contacted us and said, hey, you have to start a rock chapter here. I mean, we're in Providence. We have a thriving restaurant industry. I can't believe you guys aren't here. So that's kind of how our expansion went. I mean, I think, you know, I mentioned that the restaurant industry is a huge and fast-growing industry that also has some of the lowest-paying jobs. And so I think there's a real desire on the part of restaurant workers to have an organization, you know, um, that they can rally with and they can try to impact the industry. Um, You know, people love working in the restaurant industry. It's a passion for a lot of people. They want to stay in it. It's not, you know, last resort, desperate jobs. It's a, you know, careers people choose. Um, but it's not careers that can sustain them at this point, and, and it shouldn't be that way. What are some of the other policy priorities you have or focus areas for you in terms of both educating voters and consumers and making policy pushes? Yeah, so there's a lot of policy items that are you know really important to Rock and we've engaged on. For example, paid sick days. Um, you know, just got paid sick days passed in Philadelphia. That was a huge victory, especially for restaurant workers. Uh, one of our members was, you know, featured there. He had really moving testimony about what it's like, you know, to be a restaurant worker and to not be able to take off when sick and, you know, what it means to be really sick and serving food. Um, you know, scheduling rights are something that's important to us. But our real policy focus is on this tips minimum wage issue, this one fair wage issue. Um, you know, the reason for that is all of these other issues, minimum wage issues generally, for example, are really important to us and are things that, you know, we work with allies and we work on. But the vast majority of tipped workers in the United States are restaurant workers. So as an organization of restaurant workers, we really feel like it's our obligation to take the lead um, and really push on this issue. So you've used a variety of tactics from on-the-ground organizing. There's been some very visible protests that you have helped to organize. And then also, uh, you know, meeting with legislators and doing high-level lobbying. What have you found to be the most effective, and what is your strategy going forward? So I wouldn't say it's any one thing. We try to take a three-pronged approach, which is essentially affecting cultural change, corporate change, and policy change. Um, And we also 
take a three-pronged approach to organizing in the sense that, you know, our, our main focus is on organizing restaurant workers, but also high-road employers and consumers as well. Um, so that's kind of the approach that we take to all of our work. Right now, our policy work is focused on one fair wage. We're working primarily um, in states in the Northeast. We're moving uh, legislation in several different states in both the House and the Senate that would eliminate the lower subminimum wage for tipped workers. So on this show, we've we've talked about farm workers. We've talked a little bit about the connections between food safety and labor issues. Uh, we're talking to you today, and our our subject matter generally is food policy. And I want to get your perspective on, you know, we've seen such a change in the conversation around people who are concerned with food policy um, uh, around issues of labor throughout the food chain. Uh, and I want to really hear your perspective how do you see rocks work fitting within the broader food movement or maybe the better way to maybe it's the other way around how do you see food fitting in with within the broader labor and, and equity movement yeah i mean i think it's a, a really important part of the conversation i think as you mentioned there's been you know growing awareness and attention to where does our food come from you know even increasing the like how is it produced and you know and even the conditions for the producers like farmers but the part of the conversation that's really been left out is you know, who are the people that are serving us food and, and what is, you know, what is the impact of this system on them? And that's like an important part that we feel like we're bringing forward. So I think it's an integral part of the conversation about the food system, you know, especially because, as I mentioned before, so much of our money that we spend on food is spent in restaurants. We spend so much of our time in restaurants that I think, it, you know, thinking about restaurant workers and how they're treated um, is a really integral part of this conversation. To me, it seems to fit, you know, that one consistent theme is the topic of visibility and understanding everything that is goes on behind food arriving in front of you or being able to eat food at home. And, uh, the, you know, one of the one of the big pushes is just for better understanding and more visibility. Absolutely. I mean, Saru, um, who's, you know, the director of our organization, titled her book intentionally Behind the Kitchen Door, which gets at what you're saying. I mean, it's a look at what is really going on in the restaurant industry. And, and somehow, you know, sometimes it's not even the workers that work, you know, quote, unquote, behind the kitchen door, the ones that are back of the house workers, but a real understanding of what is the life like of a tips worker as well, someone you do see when you eat in a restaurant. Um, so a huge part of this, whether it's, you know, corporate or policy, is public education and just really increasing awareness um, for the public about, restaurant workers and the challenges they face in this industry in the United States. Well, Meg, I want to thank you for joining today. It's, that's Meg Foskey with the Restaurant Opportunity Center. We're just out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. But I appreciate you coming on to have this conversation with us. Thank you so much. That brings us to the close of this episode of Eating Matters. I want to thank Tim Archer for our music and uh, our engineer, Liz Smith, as well as our, our assistant producer, Talia Rolf. Um, the t- show is available as a podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher and here on Heritage Radio Network as well. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.